Welcome to the Armchair Trader, bringing you insight and analysis for the self-directed investor. In the studio today is myself, Stuart Fieldhouse, editor of the Armchair Trader. With me, my colleague, Michael Morton. And we also have Tony Cross, investment writer and regular contributor to the Armchair Trader. We'll proceed with having a quick look at the ISA season, which is coming up if you are a UK domiciled investor. If you're not, you may be wondering what we're talking about, but basically the ISA is the individual savings account, which is a tax-free investment vehicle for uh, UK investors, uh, which allows you to invest up to £22,000 now in um, a wide range of different assets, including shares and funds. And we have quite an in-depth listing of what we call self-select ISAs on the website. These are ISAs where you can actually choose what goes in them rather than having a, a third-party fund management company to um, manage it for you. So it's, you are effectively picking and choosing your own investments to go into, into the ISA. And we've got quite a good list there of um, many of the leading providers of, of these types of uh, structure along with the fees. Investors have an allowance, uh, that £22,000 allowance, they have to use up by the end of March. So the reason why we call this the ISA season is because it's the time of year when people suddenly realise if they have some excess money, uh, they need to invest it. I, th- I think there's a there's been a big, big change there, Stuart, in the last few years, though, as that allowance has gone up from just a few thousand pounds to... Uh, to, to say, say north of 20,000 now that, uh, that historically yes you, you found a lot of people with with three or four thousand pounds left at the end of the tax year wanting to get that salted away before they lost that allowance um, and certainly work that I did with with other ISA providers you know five six years ago we saw that time and time again but I do wonder to what extent the ISA season is now a bit of a bit of a misnomer mm. people aren't really going to run out to the or, or you know Sadly, most of us aren't going to be able to exhaust a £22,000 allowance every year and, uh, and be left to the last minute. But I say it certainly makes for a talking point. There's, there seems to be a wider range of investments you can put in a self-select ISA now, aren't there? Because before it used to be a specific um, UK-listed shares and, and uh, investment trusts and specific ISA eligible funds. But more recently it seems like they're becoming a little bit more uh, liberal with uh, ups, for example foreign shares I think you can add in now. I'm not sure for I know you certainly had AIM stocks into them that was a change that took place oh, yes. a few years ago um, and uh, was, was seen as something that was you know a, a, a great advantage to uh, to those smaller cap or those very small cap um, typically very small cap stocks uh, in terms of you know increasing demand for them um, and uh, you know I think the, the, the government has to take a more liberal attitude here as well because the reality is most of us probably aren't saving enough for retirement so anything that we can do to incentivize people to get stuck in and, and give them a you know what at the end of the day is for a lot of people a relatively minor tax break because remember you get the first I think it's two thousand pounds at the minute uh, of dividend income um, tax-free. Uh, that's that is that is falling, I believe, next tax year to one thousand pounds. But there's still quite a nice buffer there for for people that maybe haven't got a lot of money. You, you know, you're going to have to have fifteen thousand pounds invested typically to be getting a thousand pounds worth of dividend income 
from relatively high yielding stocks so you know there, there is a um, I think there's a there's a nice initiative here in terms of getting people to to, to build that rainy day fund by promoting the, the the whole ISA concept I think it's quite interesting I um, seen a, um, an article recently um, Hargreaves Lansdowne um, uh, sent me uh, an email about it a while ago where um, uh, some of their clients now sort of having been um, putting in a full allocation into their PEP um, beforehand and, and now into their ISAs um, have become ISA millionaires um, really? and wow. we're getting to that point now where yeah. where you know people if, if they are able to max out if you're fortunate enough to have enough money to max out your um, your allowance um, is, is setting you up for, uh, for for a nice comfortable retirement or setting you up to be the richest man in the graveyard yeah, <laughs> but it's fourteen years. Which is interesting. <laughs> and obviously, you know, over fourteen. Well, I think fourteen years is the ISA lifetime, isn't it? The, the peps go back further than that. Yes, they because do. I say over fourteen years, you, you're going to have to make some pretty smart bets to get to a million pounds. Yeah, yeah. maxing out an allowance until a few years ago was just a few thousand pounds. So yeah, you know, I I I, I take the point. And uh, yes, there are. That there are some people that have that have managed to get to that uh, that, that 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 very impressive level of uh, of a million pounds of uh, of uh, of savings, which is you know significant by uh, by anyone's metric. Yeah, well, that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and looking at looking at the the data that we've actually got on the website, there is quite a um, one of the things that uh, surprised me was there's quite a lot of variation in the fees self-select ISAs. Um, there's a lot of competition and certainly amongst the top three or four um, the the brokerage fees you're getting there are actually very good if you're thinking of, be, of doing your active trading in your ISA and certainly as a, if you were thinking about trading liquid UK stocks and, and you're thinking of investing less than £22,000 it seems like a good first port of call but then on the other end of the scale the data shows that there are some fairly expensive offerings out there as well I, I, I think it's one of those cases though where you do get what you pay for the bigger um, lower cost uh, brokers can come unfortunately with some pretty bad um, customer service that's from my own experience um, you know that you're one in a vast pool so whilst the, the pricing may look attractive. I think you've just got to be mindful of the fact that you're, you, you do run the risk of um, if you have anything that is out of the ordinary. Uh, I, I, I'm running through a dispute at the minute with, a, with a, an ISA that I set up for one of my kids with one of the big brokers and uh, that isn't going anywhere quick and for the amount of money involved it is slightly farcical um, but we, you know so you have that, that situation where uh, you know Yes, you can do it, and you know, in theory, there's going to be no difference if you're, you know, with a broker whether you're doing that trading of stocks within the ISA or out with. Obviously, the the other advantage you've got now is that you can trade out of an, an ISA position and reinvest the money in the same tax year, and it doesn't count against your allowance. Whereas historically, I believe it used to count against the allowance. So once you'd invested three thousand pounds, as it was, if you took that three thousand pounds out. You couldn't put it back into an ISA that tax year, you'd have to wait until the next tax year, whereas now you can go in and out. So you do have that ability to do the short-term trading in your ISA. Again, obviously be mindful of the costs. Whilst the um, 
obviously the, the, the dividends are tax free and there's no capital gains tax, you're still going to be paying stamp duty on the, uh, uh, when, when, when you make every purchase and you're still going to be paying the uh, transaction fees for the broker. That's very true. And, and on, the, on the subject of customer service, I, I found, uh, I have a self-select ISA and I found when I made the decision to change ISA provider, um, it did turn into a very long and involved exercise. Um, and and it, obviously the incumbent was making it very difficult for me to actually do it. And uh, I had several phone calls and emails going back and forth before, before I actually managed to effect the transfer. I think there are moves afoot, though, aren't there, to by the regulator currently going through a review process to uh, to try and make this more uh, frictionless to allow people to move, and, and, and that obviously in turn will make the market uh, potentially that bit more competitive. Although, of course, if people are using opening offers to lure people in, then uh, then I guess that's going to be a short-lived event because you don't want the the, the proverbial rate tart just jumping around from one uh, one broker to the next every year to uh, to save. To say fifty pounds, where it's actually going to, it, it, this does come with a meaningful cost for the uh, for the broker to handle the transfer. Yes, and the custodian as well. I got the I got the impression with my um, custodian is the the institution that actually holds on to the shares for you and keeps them in your name. But um, it sounded to me with my with my movement of my eyes that there was a lot of uh, toing and throwing with the custodian bank as well. Um, I don't think they're incentivized to be helpful at all with share transfers. Yes, all exciting stuff, but um, if you want to uh, have a closer look at what's on the market in, in terms of the uh, self-directed ISAs, then do make sure you check out the section on our website. I'm putting together our uh, best buys at the moment for, uh, for 2019. Um, it's interesting uh, what you say, Tony, about the, uh, um, the different uh, costs and things involved. Um, they are quite disparate. Um, between between the brokers and, and and there are there are savings there to be had, but obviously services is one thing. Another thing I'd, I'm quite keen to sort of look into is is if you go with sort of a, one of the larger brokers that maybe you pay a little bit extra um, in platform fees. Um, are the costs you know if you're if you're going down the fund route cheaper than than if you're going for one of the guys that's uh, um, uh, that, that's cheaper for their platform fees. So uh, it'll be interesting to see, but that'll be coming out in the next uh, next week or so. Excellent. I should look forward to that. <laughs> Very good indeed. So, so w w one thing that's that's that I guess uh, would be quite interesting um, for, for for people listening in as well um, is where to put your ISA funds um, for this year. Your 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 twenty. Twenty thousand pounds, twenty-two thousand, twenty-two thousand pounds. Yeah. Um, where where does it go this year? Well, it's. Uh, I think this year is going to be a really interesting one um, if you're a UK investor because um, you've got Brexit looming at the end of March. And <laughs> sorry to bring that up on this podcast as well, but uh, that could have a big impact on any any local assets you might have and any local investments you have. Um, People who already have a pension fund, be it a company pension fund or state pension fund, already have exposure to um, a lot of UK assets just because those pension funds, by definition, will have a lot of sterling exposure. So with your ISA, you may be wanting to look at investments that are not going to be as affected by Brexit, for example, 
um, maybe, I mean, just taking an example here, but um, yeah, the US or, or Japanese equities in a fund might be one possible solution. I, I think that the, the challenge there, Stuart, is that with the pound so beaten down right now, if you start looking to invest overseas, you're potentially buying in at the wrong end of the market. Because I think regardless of what happens on March 29th, there can't be much more downside, fingers crossed, he for says. the pound from here. <laughs> um, that, 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 you know, that there's going to be short-term volatility. But what we've seen repeatedly is sterling getting stuck against cable around about that 128 level. The market doesn't seem willing to push any lower, despite the, the mounting uncertainty, despite the emerging political risk. So the, the, the indication being that actually what's going to happen now is, and especially if we, if, we, if we get a cordial Brexit, a soft Brexit, or let's tempt fate, maybe no Brexit at all, the pound's going to gain from here. That means anything that you've bought that's denominated in a foreign currency is going to depreciate in sterling terms. So... For my money, I would be saying I would be thinking those blue chip stocks that are denominated in sterling, that are earning most of their income from overseas, could prove a good bet. So again, you do have some exposure there if the pound appreciates, but not to the same extent as being in a pure play dollar or yen denominated stock. So you're thinking here in terms of resource companies resource, like resource stocks or even even some of the big services companies people like Vodafone they've got a lot of a lot of income coming in from Europe from uh, India about 80% of, of profits in the FTSE 100 come from overseas and I guess the other thing you need to bear in mind is what are you investing for where are your liabilities going to be in the future yes if you're looking long term to move overseas then it probably makes sense to start you know, to, to make sure you're, 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 you're covering that base now. But if you're ultimately going to be, you know, you're in the UK, you're going to retire in the UK, you're going to be in the UK eternally, then having those um, sterling denominated assets is going to make a lot of sense. So obviously there is a political risk, but we should probably consider that in a separate conversation. That's a big one to talk about. That's an ongoing one, isn't it? It's, it's quite interesting because uh, um, looking at the, um, uh, the stats on uh, um, inflows and outflows of, of funds, it's only, um, I've only seen data for uh, December um, at the moment, but uh, a lot of money is coming out of the UK, UK equities and, and going into um, global funds, um, likes of uh, Fundsmith uh, equity, uh, Linton Train uh, global equity um, and those kind of things. So uh, it, it's... Having said that, it was December, um, and uh, it would be interesting to see where where the money's moving as we as we close in on March. I, I have no I have no doubt that that is a that is a popular trend. I say my only caveat is the the idea that if we do see suddenly see a ten fifteen percent appreciation in sterling, mm-hmm. uh, you know, those investments are automatically going to be on the back foot. However, as always, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You should be looking at making these investments for the the longer term in the, the vast majority of instances and you know a relatively yes that's going to be that's going to be a, a, a big hit but five years down the line you've got that uh, geographic diversification which again is really important to have mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's it, it, it doesn't surprise me at all to, to learn that people are uh, 
have been reallocating assets even this late in the game. But really, the time to start doing it was probably in May 2016, not uh, not December 2018. <laughs> Absolutely right. Well, one thing, uh, one other thing I've, I've picked up that's that's quite interesting is. Uh, uh, is that a lot of um, uh, uh, movement in, in money is, is sort of going into income funds rather than um, growth funds. Um, so people sort of taking their, their dividends um, and uh, possibly reinvesting um, and, and going for sort of high yield. So, so we're looking at sort of uh, yields above 5% as, is a bit of a trend at the moment as well. Any merit in that, do you think? Well... I, I'm, I'm no expert on those funds in particular, so I don't, I don't know what's going into them, but certainly from a, from a pure equity perspective, I think you've got to be very careful at the minute in terms of chasing yield, because we're seeing some high-yielding stocks where the share price has been beaten down significantly. And, uh, you know, I, I think that is a, um, you know, just, just one, of those, one of those things to be mindful of. If you're, if you're looking at a, at a stock purely on the dividend, just check back and see what's happened to the share price over the last six months or so, because if that's tanked, and it was one of the healthcare companies, I forget what it was, but, but where someone had been in, uh, invested for a long time and the share price had gone up and up and up and up and up, and all of a sudden it had turned. The dividend's being maintained, so the dividend yield's fantastic. But the, um, actually no, it wasn't, it was, um, it was BAT, um, British American Tobacco, and the, the share price had, had, had tanked, so the dividend yield's fantastic. But really, are they going to need to maintain that? I don't know, but you know, just uh, be typically when when you when you start seeing big dividend yields in the past, it's been a red flag for uh, for problems coming down the track. It's it's twofold, isn't it? They, with, with a high dividend yield, there's there becomes pressure to maintain that, um, and obviously any any reduction in dividend yield uh, in in the future is 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 seen very negatively. Um, the other side is um, uh, the other side of the coin is whether the business is is um, uh, consistently performing um, well enough to to um, to be able to pay that high dividend. Um, you think perhaps that the share price uh, might sort of uh, um, uh, go up as a as a result, but um, it's it, it's getting the balance right between the two, I think. Yeah, and the other thing is. But you've got to also bear in mind that the UK interest rates are still incredibly low and some of that flow has got to be people looking for a better yield than they're getting from, you know, gilts, basically. Um, there's, there's, there is money coming out of equities and looking for a new home and, and um, sort of low-risk government debt is not providing that yield. So that's why you're seeing cash flowing into, say, the peer-to-peer lending market but also people prepared to take on a bit of extra risk um, with exposure, say, to corporate corporate bonds um, just because they want the income and they want to, want to leave it there until they get an idea of where the global economy and indeed the UK economy is going at the moment. Do you think that's sensible, Stuart, having, ha- having exposure to, to um, corporate debt in what, could, what we could see move into a very rapid... Um, phase of, of interest rate increases in, say, 2020-2021? That's where the institutional money has been going, and there's been a lot of talk about how the interest rates are going to go up, and we've seen the Fed shy away from that, having, having bullishly said 
they were going to do something like 3D rate hikes, and, and these were this is when the rate hikes are going to be. And uh, the White House started to complain about yeah. that, and now they've backed away from it. And we've seen the same with the Bank of England, um, started to raise rates, and then, and then now the UK economy is not looking as healthy. We've got Brexit on the horizon, and the Bank of England suddenly a lot more cautious. I think six months ago, I think it did look like we were heading for that. Yeah. Um, now I think central bankers certainly um, in, in the US and Europe uh, are backing away from a tightening policy at the moment. I, 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 I absolutely agree with the, that assessment of how the central bankers are communicating the message. The risk to me is that in not so much in continental Europe or in the, in the um, Eurozone countries, but both the UK and the US face a risk of significant increases in inflation. Um, in the UK we've got uh, Brexit, potentially going to be disruption in terms of pricing, potentially going to be tariffs applied to imports, um, so that's going to drive up um, the cost of goods, constraints in the labour market, going to drive up the cost of you know, employment. So we've got, we've got two factors there that are going to basically make it more expensive to do anything. And then in the US, you've got this big outflow. Since the, um, the credit crisis, there's been a, a, the, the, um, the, the monetary base has gone up um, about two and a half fold. It was 1.6 trillion and now it's at 4 trillion. That is starting to come off which, as one person put it to me the other week, that is essentially a flow of money going from the banks to Main Street. So people are going to start spending that money as that curve comes down. We saw it in the um, uh, 2016, it dipped down and inflation picked up at the same time. So as it comes off again, I think we've got these extraneous factors that could end up driving inflation. And it's not so much that the central bank don't want to act, the central bank are going to have to act Less you end up with inflation running it, you know, close on double digits, which is obviously contrary to their their state today, with both the Bank of England and the Fed set to um, to keep inflation at two percent. Well, my impression with some of these flows is that it is the fact that base rates are so low, and also some investors are just taking risk off the table from the equity market, and that's why. They're looking at more, more in the area of um, real assets or, or high yield investments. Yeah. I think I think, I think that's why they're doing it. Um, the point to remember with these with these corporate bonds is, yes, they can pay the coupon now, mm. but when that comes to maturity, if they're looking to roll that into another, oh, yeah. a, 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 another debt instrument, well, potentially what's paying five percent now, will be having to yield ten percent when they come to refinance, or maybe 12%, will the market tolerate that from that business? And, uh, and, and then you run the risk of the, the underlying, you know, the coupon's great, but what's the underlying bond going to be worth at maturity? And I just think that's the, uh, you know, the, long, the longer term picture that, you know, in much the same way as the housing market in the UK, I, I dread to think what's going to happen to it when interest rates tick up because there are people that have owned property for 10, 12 years yeah. and have known nothing but these ultra low interest rates. Well, this is the $64,000 question, isn't it? Because I mean, you and I are young enough to remember higher interest rates, much, much higher interest yeah. rates in the UK. And we've seen them cut to virtually zero. And 
you look around at, as you say, in the UK housing market, can most borrowers tolerate UK-based rates at, say, 5%? Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago, you know. No, it's in, the, so it's in the late, the late 90s. I, yeah. um, um, uh, early noughties when I bought my first property under the you know that that was you know five percent I, I if I recall right it was five percent it went up to about six six and a half percent and yes you noticed it because it was a but 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 that five to six percent move is a is a twenty percent mm. move in 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 the um the the, the interest payments what mm. we're looking at now is it going from one and a quarter to say two and a half, and that's a hundred percent move in that. Yeah. Uh, that I know that that that, that uh, repayment amount, and it's uh, yeah. I think you're right. I I, I don't know. I, this is one <laughs> of the, these are one of the great what ifs of the financial markets. Can the the UK housing market even tolerate you know an increase of that level? That's 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 probably what's keeping Mark Carney awake at night. Ultimately. <laughs> Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on was the um, it's something we've been kicking around a lot actually on the armchair trader and, and if you go have a look there's several articles about it over the last six months is the whole UK um, the whole UK retail market and UK retail stocks and it's something a lot of analysts have looked at um, on a regular basis I only mention this because of uh, Debenhams this morning having um restructuring of its debt and at one minute it's looked like we were about to say goodbye to Debenhams as a as a presence on the UK high street and now it looks like they're they're potentially back in business for a few more months um, everybody seemed to be going into Christmas we were expecting that a lot of retailers would come out with some horrific numbers um, including the supermarkets and then Tesco came out with some better than expected numbers and some of the retail stocks actually bounced in, in January and, and staged a bit of a rally. Um, we were quite surprised by that because we were expecting in, in some of the discussions we were having back in November that there would be absolute carnage on the high street. Do you think that this is, um, that we're seeing a sustainable support level for UK retail stocks or is it going to be more bad news? Sad, sadly not. I, I, I think it's more bad news, especially for the generalists. The, the niche players are doing very well we see that amongst the uh, you know the fashion brands the you know the the, uh, the, the the luxury brands they're doing well also if you look at the performance of the uh, shopping center operators I think this is a good benchmark as well the ones that are doing well are the ones that have got the have, have gone after the leisure sector have gone after the um, you know the, 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 those small boutique type brands the stuff you're not going to be able to buy on Amazon. If you want, if you want a, you know, a, just a bog standard T-shirt. Well, why pay eight pounds in Topshop when you can pay two pounds on Amazon? Well, you can probably get four of them for eight pounds on Amazon, you know, and um, and and sort of spend ten pounds on the deliveries free, whatever. You know, I think that's that's where the where 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 the big crunch is gonna is gonna come. We saw that uh, there was that shopping centre sold in Scotland for uh, the princely sum of three hundred thousand pounds. Uh, last week or the week before, um, so that's about the cost of two average houses in Fife or forty percent of an average property in central London. Um, yes, it's going to be knocked down and, and 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 rebuilt, but I think it just illustrates the fact that the the market has changed so significantly. What you're seeing now is a string of 
renegotiations over uh, rents that are being paid because the, the especially the likes of um, of Mike Ashley, he's got so much clout now in that space. He can say to the to the to the the landlords, well, you, you can either have something or you can have nothing. What you're not going to be able to get is what we've agreed to or what's been agreed to in the contract because that just doesn't stack up anymore. The the, the model no longer works like that. So you know, I, th I think that's um, you know that, that that that's an interesting an interesting development. Um, and yeah, I, 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 the, the interest you mentioned that Debenhams uh, note this morning. One thing that jumped out at me in that is the financing rate didn't seem too bad, five percent over LIBOR, but that can be dialed up in the second quarter. And certainly, the reading of the note that I saw had no detail of how or why that would be dialed up in 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 Q two. So compared to it was um, carpet right about a year ago had to arrange some interim debt financing. And that rate that Debenham's got looked comparatively attractive to what they paid. I seem to remember there was a massive arrangement fee, and then uh, you know a high coupon on the uh, uh, on, on the debt over a fairly short period. I mean, Carpet Right have survived to fight another year, but it makes me wonder what what could that mean for Debenham's in the longer term. I, I think the high, well, obviously the high street plays a very important part in the the UK economy in terms of you know it, it employs people, it has a social benefit. Uh, yes, it's quite nice to be able to, when well, I can't be bothered to wait for Amazon or wait for the package to be delivered, um, you know, to be able to jump in the car or get on the bus and go to my nearest high street and buy whatever I need. But, the, the, you know, the model is, uh, I think the model's changing and I think there's more bad news to come if we've seen an uptick now of turning temporary. I think you touched on it there. It, uh, online is obviously the, uh, the, the, you know, a key part of, uh, of uh, you know, the retail sector. And it strikes me that um, the, the businesses that have sort of got their act together, you know, through online sales, are generally tending to sort of fare a little bit better than, than those that haven't. What do you think? Is it is uh, I mean, I get the, the likes of um, ASOS um, have come up with a. Um, uh, they're having a few problems at the moment. Yeah. Um, but generally, uh, obviously you well, look at the I, I think there's a there's a, a, another interesting point there in terms of. Uh, what's happened with Ocado just in the last uh, week or so down in their Hampshire distribution plant, that's going to have a big impact on sales. Now we've seen this with, I'm sure it was ASOS as well, where they had a, um, a fire in a distribution centre a couple of years ago. And uh, you know, there, there does seem to be some concentration risk in these businesses. Yes, they can overcome it, or it would appear that in the majority of instances they can overcome it. But again, perhaps it does suggest that the, um, the that, that very centralised operation isn't quite the silver bullet that some people might like to think. Um, Sports Direct, as far as I'm aware, have everything in that Shirebrook centre. You know, it's it's the size of a size of a small town by all accounts. But you know, that, 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 that if anything was to happen there, then, uh, you know, what, what would happen to their operation? Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, um, I, I think there is that, um, you know, the, the, there's a, a, a definite concentration risk there that I, we've started to see, but all of a sudden I wonder if I you see a whole series of those coming up, what would be the, what would be the takeaway for that? No, I can see that. So anything else going on in the, in the world of broking, Tony, that, that our listeners might be interested in? What are we seeing? We're seeing, 
in, in terms of in terms of the you know the leverage day trading market, people trying to um, innovate off the wake of really the ESMA restrictions that have cut those leverage levels. Uh, people making concerted efforts to better educate clients. Um, one broker I'm aware of at the minute, Australian firm called Axie Trader. They've got a, an FCA licensed arm running out of London, so they've uh, got 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 a, a utility called Cyquasion. Um, uh, that they, or to, it's a partner company of theirs, and that provides feedback on every trade that you place. So they're looking to, uh, you, you know, not only at was the trade profitable, but they're looking at how frequently you're trading, mm -hmm. you know, um, how many instruments are you trading across. It's trying to actually make people trying to reduce the risk. I think of of, of, of how people are trading. I think that's the that's a classic innovation we're going to see more of. Those risk warnings are laid bare now. Mm. How many people are losing money? I think it's they're all going to try. All the brokers are going to try and make efforts to get that at or below fifty percent. And obviously, the important thing to remember is that's going to be some kind of um, bell curve distribution. So you're not going to have to move that centre line all that far in one direction to to have the ability to bring that number down quite sharply. The you know a lot of people are losing money but are only losing a relatively small amount of money, £20, £50, £100 and obviously that's counting as a loss making client in the same way as someone who's lost £1,000 or £10,000 does. So I think those, you know, that, that, that desire to find some marginal improvement is going to, uh, going to be seen wider across the industry. It'll be interesting to see what other brokers come out with. Do you think that actual traders are looking closely at those numbers and say comparing brokers on on the basis of that loss-making percentage that ESMO is, is making them disclose? I, th I think you, you need to be careful about that because if you have a very small number of clients, there's one broker I won't name who I know has a very small number of clients, and they've got a really low percentage figure because those clients they've got are clearly professional, semi-professional traders, know what they're doing, managing their risk properly, and are, you know, are, the bulk of them are consistently making money. Um, I think when it comes to the to the biggest players, people will look at it, and you probably should look at it because if you have a, a fully commoditized arrangement where you've got, you know, you've got ten thousand traders with three or four brokers, if there's a five or ten percent difference between two of those figures, you probably want to find out why. Is someone actually providing better execution? Is someone providing better support? You know, is, is, is the pricing consistently tighter with one rather than the other? And it's all well and good people screaming about their tightest spreads or their average spreads. But I think that starts to become the, you know, if, if one person's showing 80% and one's showing 70%, I think it's worth closer, um, you know, some closer inspection. And it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing that appear as a reference point for the, um, you know, as, as an index of, of how the big... The big traders are how, so how the big brokers are are are, are mapping out in the uh, in the future. I think getting that getting that rate lower not only helps from a marketing message but also does say something about how the business is working. So, do we think that the ESMA regulations and things are helping to improve the perception of the industry um, for traders themselves? I I don't know. I think the, 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 the big risk is it's driving, it's driving people from a regulated environment to an unregulated environment. There are, the, the, there are groups of traders who benefit or who run strategies that 
require high leverage. People that are um, probably following largely algo-based, algorithmic-based um, trading systems. Uh, so I think the important thing about that is they're taking the emotion out of it. They're not staring at a screen with flashing lights and a news feed and suddenly going, I'm going to buy there, I'm going to sell there, and getting carried away with it. The, these, these guys have plugged software into their MT4 platforms and they're just running and they require the high leverage. So what you're seeing there is brokers make efforts to um, register offshore. And I mean, this is nothing new, Isle of Man, Belize, stuff like that has happened for, for ages. But the, you know, the, some of the offshore entities are becoming more diligent and realise they can provide a viable alternative. I was talking to a, a Jap who just regulated an entity in the Cook Islands and he said the process for doing it was absolutely, you know, it was so labour intensive. The amount of documentation they had to show, they've had to open a physical office, they've had to employ five or six people locally. So the regulator is, you know, is laying down stringent um, guidelines here, and you know he's saying that people, Tony, people want the ability to get this high leverage, forcing them to either try and convince a broker that they're professional, or put them onto thirty to one leverage doesn't work for them. They 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 need the the two hundred to one leverage that was out there. They're just looking to scalp the market, pick off a couple of pips at a time, and you know we have to off, you know we're offering them that that solution. But there is the bigger situation um, do you have rogue operators come in and people start trading with them and they're completely out with the the, the, the protections of the FCA so thank you very much indeed for that Tony that's been really insightful and thanks very much for coming in to talk to us today. you're welcome you've been listening to the armchair trader podcast be sure to pop by our website thearmchairtrader.com for regular daily updates on trading investment and financial markets around the world.